good morning, everyone. Good morning. Today we're going to be jumping back into our study in the book of Colossians. So here in chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, the Apostle Paul is going to continue arguing for the preeminence of Christ over everything and that his supremacy should affect the way that the Colossian church should view the world. The title I was given for this is Philosophy versus Christ. Paul shows us here how worldly systems of thought are entirely bankrupt and why Christ is such a great alternative. So I'm going to read the passage and pray, and then we'll, we'll get right into it. So Colossians 2, 8 through 10. I'm reading from the CSB. Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world, rather than Christ. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ, and you have been filled by Him who is the head over every ruler and authority. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this day. God, I thank you for the gift of Christ and who he is. I pray that we would trust him and, and see him as we should, God, and that we would, we would glorify him. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So last week we saw Paul's use of his first imperative of the letter, to, to walk in Christ. Verse 6 says, So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in Him. After spending much of the first chapter expounding on how great Christ is and how His ministry points to that, Paul is now saying that the Colossian church has received this Christ and that they ought to live likewise. The implications of having Christ in us are vast. It extends to everything we think, do, and say. In today's text, we will look at how Christ impacts our philosophy. This is the only place in the Bible where the word philosophy is used. The, the idea behind philosophy is it's, it's a pursuit of wisdom. Oftentimes, when we think of philosophy, we might think of Socrates or Plato or Aristotle um, but that's, that's not quite the idea here. It's a bit broader in this text. For, for example, um, the, the teachings of the Pharisees could be considered a philosophy. It, it can be applied to any system of moral or religious belief. So it's, it's like a worldview. Your, your philosophy is, is what your wisdom looks like. Every philosophy has its own interpretation of the universe, its own view of God, its own view of right and wrong. It extends to question on, on questions of who God is and, and the meaning of life. Now, now, Paul isn't against philosophy in general. The book of Colossians is filled with examples of what godly wisdom looks like and what a godly desire for that is. In, in Colossians chapter 1, Paul says, We are asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding so that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. 
So there's a kind of philosophy that's good, that's pleasing to God, and Paul is, and, and there's a kind of philosophy that Paul is warning about here. So there's two kinds of philosophies. Philosophy can be a good thing in its proper bounds and in its proper place. So first we'll look at what is it about worldly philosophy that's so dangerous that Paul is warning about here. And then we're going to turn to Christ and to see what it is about him that Paul encourages us to have our philosophy grounded in him. So that, that's where we're going to be going. Let's start with verse 8. So first, Paul warns the Colossians, be careful that no one takes you captive. He warns them to be watchful. We should be aware that there, that there is false teaching here that's a threat. Many of the philosophies we adopt, we do without thinking carefully about it with, before accepting it. We're constantly exposed to worldly philosophies, and it becomes so easy for them to become a pattern of our thought. Once we're caught in a way of thinking, it becomes difficult to, to see it, much less break out of it. Proverbs 16.2 says, All a person's ways seem right to him, but the Lord weighs motives. If you're taken captive by a worldly philosophy, you have convinced yourself that the way you think is right. The difficulty here is that an unbiblical philosophy may sound really persuasive. Last week we saw this in verse 4 where it says, I am saying this so that no one will deceive you with arguments that sound reasonable. So, so these kinds of arguments may sound really appealing. If bad philosophies were never persuasive, then, then everyone would believe the same thing. But that's why Paul's giving a warning here to be watchful. So how do we prevent ourselves from being taken captive? There's at least two big answers here. One is that it's important that we stay in the Word of God. If we take the Bible as our source of truth, we can compare it, compare what we hear to what, to what the Bible says. Studying the Bible helps us see truth for ourselves and not, not through what other people say, and not, what, not just what other people say. The other answer is having a Bible-shaped community namely the church. When we are surrounded by other believers, we begin to see things as they see them. Of course, we should, we should take what we see in, in our church, in our schools, in our families, back, back to Scripture to see if it lines up. So we have our Bible, and we have a biblical community that act as guardrails from getting led astray. Now, I get these two answers from later in the book, in chapter 3, verse 16. It says, let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in our hearts. So that, that's how Paul encourages the Colossians to, to find true wisdom, to have the word of Christ dwelling in them, and, and to, to be admonishing one another in the church. The benefit of having an objective standard, like the word of Christ, is that having a certain position on a worldview doesn't become a matter of like just what perspective you might have listened to last, where it becomes easy to just adopt things just like that. Holding to the authority of Scripture helps us navigate issues of worldview. So, so there's the first danger, the captivity that unbiblical philosophies bring us into. The second danger here is 
that, the, that, that worldly philosophies are just empty deceit. So what, what Paul is saying here is being deceived is, is like it, being deceived by a great fraud. Worldly philosophy can, claims to offer a fullness of life, but it proves to be empty. It promises lasting satisfaction, but it can't provide that. More than that, it'll only leave people miserable in the end. Bad philosophy may even put on an illusion of truth and religiousness. It may even borrow some Christian ideas, but those ideas can only take us so far. Jesus calls us to judge a tree by its fruits. Unbiblical worldviews often lead to chaos, loneliness, helplessness, sometimes even death and destruction. A look through history at the last hundred years will show just how deadly bad ideas can be. Most significant of the bad fruits is that these ideas despise God and don't see him as he is. In, in every way of looking at it, unbiblical worldviews are, are useless. So the issue here is not that, you know, on one hand you have worldly philosophies that can provide a, a well-reasoned system of thought and a, a biblical worldview that's just uh, blind and reasoning faith, you know. Quite the contrary, Paul points out here that worldly philosophies prove to be a sham. As, as Romans one twenty two diagnoses, claiming to be wise, they became fools. True satisfaction, true life, true knowledge can't be found in the world. Creation was never intended to provide that. So that, that's, the, that's the second danger here. They're, they're just empty deceit. The third issue here is that they're based on human tradition. So the issue that Paul is pointing out here is that the source of their worldviews is wrong. They're coming out of the minds of people, not the mind of God. Scripture is explicit that our ways and our thoughts and God's ways and his thoughts are very different. Of course, there can be overlap between man's thinking and God's thinking and God's revelation and because God's revelation and um, our, our view of that in the world can, can overlap. But the issue is much deeper than that. It's, it's a root issue. There is no regard for God's thinking in the first place in a human-based worldview. It's an issue of, will you take Christ as the foundation for your worldview? That's what we saw last week. Paul says, just as you have received Christ as Lord, continue to walk in him, being rooted up and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught and overflowing with gratitude. What the Colossians have received here is not a human tradition. They have received Christ himself, Christ as Lord. The dividing line here is between Christ and everything else. The Colossians must face the question of, who they will ground their philosophy on. Will it be Christ or will it be their own minds? It's a question of authority. Virtually every unbiblical worldview prizes human autonomy. John Frame describes it as a man's right to be the final judge of truth and falsity, right and wrong. He says, from a biblical viewpoint, it is simply the attitude of unbelief. It's the attitude that says, my mind is my own. So in that worldview, you have the right to seek knowledge of God's world without being subject to the revelation of God. 
And that, that's what happened in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve chose their own thinking over God's word to them. The, this idea of autonomy is underneath virtually every sinful decision. In our own autonomy, we exchange the truth for a lie, as if we have made ourselves the judge of what is true and what is right. When someone rejects Christ as Lord, they make themselves Lord, whether that looks like emphasizing reason or experience, whether that looks like saying there's no Lord or idolatrously ascribing lordship to something finite. It's all essentially placing yourself as Lord in your life. As Christians, we must place our trust in Christ, not in our own thinking. If we see overlap between God's thinking and the world's thinking, we ought to love that truth as coming from him and as glorifying to him. Christ is Lord, and on him we ought to build our worldview. So, so that's the third danger that's built on the traditions of man. Finally, the fourth problem with worldly philosophies is that they are based on the elements of the world. Now, this one is a bit more difficult to interpret because it's unclear what Paul is referring to here. Some translations add the word spirits to elements. Other translations add the word principles here. In any case, it seems to to refer to what is fundamentally true about the world, such that we can uh, live in the world to our advantage based on those elements. So Colossians 2.20 puts it like this. If you, if you died with Christ to the elements of the world, why do you still live as if you belong to the world? Why do you submit to regulations? So those who live according to the elements here are, are the ones who live worldly lives. The world creates their understanding of how everything operates. From there they say, here's what you need to do to get ahead in the world. But for the Christian, we come from a different understanding of how the world works. The difference between a Christian worldview and a non-Christian one is not found in, you know, what a Sunday morning looks like or, or, or what modesty means. The, the Christian worldview um, and the unbiblical worldview differ on, on fundamental principles in our assumptions and presuppositions that we make in everyday life. We haven't come to different conclusions after reasoning from some common ground. There aren't any common notions between a believer and an unbeliever. Or, or to be more precise, if unbelievers were fully consistent with their presuppositions and believers with theirs, we won't have any common beliefs. And as far as apologetics is concerned, the question then arises here of what, what then is the point of contact between a believer and a non-believer from from which we can move to an agreement, right? Because the, the answer can't be something of a shared worldview. This passage shows us that we have disagreements on what is fundamental. What we, what we do, though, have is a knowledge of God. Unbelievers have a kind of true knowledge of God, but they suppress that truth. Romans 1 is the relevant text here. Verse 18 and 19 say, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. Jumping down to verse 32, although they know God's just sentence, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud uh, applaud others who practice them. 
Sin has effects on our minds. It affects our reasoning. The Bible even describes unbelievers as having a kind of blindness. God's grace is what's needed here. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. So what's needed here is a transformation of the mind. God has enabled us to see what we once suppressed. From here, our worldview can shift to a biblical one. There are great differences between a biblical worldview and a non-biblical one. One way to identify unbiblical philosophies is that they have worldly metrics for what it means to be successful. Whether it's that you look better, or you have more money, or, or you get people to like you, be more happy, their worldview measures success without regard to what God thinks. But like Colossians 2.20 points out, we died to Christ, to the elements of the world. We are not indebted to any worldly measure of accomplishment. Paul goes on to point out that regulations that come from these philosophies can even have a reputation for wisdom, but they're ultimately of no value. On top of that, not only are they not grounded in God, they don't even accomplish the things that they do promise. As, as he called them earlier, they are empty, empty deceit. At the end of the chapter, he says, although these have a reputation for wisdom by promoting self-made religion, false humility, and severe treatment of the body, they are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. Worldly, worldly philosophies are ultimately bankrupt of any value. And to follow these elements can become a kind of slavery, It can take us captive, as we saw earlier. To follow the world's order is to go against the Spirit's work in setting us free. As Christians, we know God. Or or to be more precise, God knows us. Therefore, instead of following the world's order, we are to follow God's order. Galatians 4, 6-9 says this, And because you are sons, God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father! So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if son, then God has made you an heir. But in the past, since you did not know God, you were enslaved to things that by nature are not God's. But now, since you know God, or rather have become known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elements? Do you want to be enslaved to them all over again? So what Paul is saying there is to turn from the elements, is to turn back to the very things that we were saved from. So as those who are saved, where do we turn? We turn to Christ. In Christ, we find the alternative to worldly philosophy. Paul has just shown that unbiblical worldviews, one, can take you blindly, two, are deceptive in what they promise, Three are man-centered, not God-centered. And, and four, they come from different presuppositions about what's true in the world. Most importantly, though, Paul critiques bad worldviews for not being Christ-centered. Here, our passage shifts from, from describing the dangers of unbiblical worldviews to the glories of Christ. Now, what is it about him that he makes such a great alternative to worldly philosophy? 
what is it about Christ that we should build our worldviews and our lives on him? So that's where we're going now. Paul's argument here begins with a recognition of the deity of Christ. In, in verse 9, Paul continues, For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. Now that's quite the argument. Paul has, just, has, has spent quite a bit of ink in this letter explaining the sheer majesty of Christ. And, and what this verse is saying about Christ is pretty incredible. So, so the infinite God, who is not bound by space and time, dwells in human form, somehow. Now, how does that work? I don't know. And, and I, I may never know, right? Um, but what this verse is telling us is so far beyond our imaginations that we're reaching the edges of language to, to even talk about it. In, in some worldviews, everything that is true can be comprehended by, by pure reason. But, but in the Christian worldview, we recognize a distinction between creator and creature. We are finite, and God is infinite. There, there's some threshold we, we just can't cross. But on the other hand, these truths are in the Bible. And if it's in the Bible, it's there for our edification. Our response to getting a sight of the incomprehensible magnificence of God should, one, be of fear and awe and um, humility, right, and worship of him. And, and two, it should draw us in to, to know him more. It reminds us that we have not yet reached a point where we have totally comprehended God and his will. There's more of him to know. There's more of him to love. That's why this verse here is, is in Scripture. As, as Pastor Bill is fond of saying, words have meaning and, and God knows how to speak, right? So even if there are difficult doctrines to understand, Scripture does speak in some level of clarity on what is true. God intends to proclaim himself in his word. So even if we aren't totally able to comprehend something, we can still say true things about it. Across church history, there has been a great effort to make sure that we speak rightly about God and about Christ. In part, this is because many errors have crept into the church denying basic truths about God. So it became important to recognize explicitly what Scripture teaches about God. This, this helps us speak rightly. For example, God has revealed himself in Scripture as triune. How that works is beyond us. But, but we can say something like this. When we speak of God in terms of his nature, there is only one God. When we speak of him in terms of persons, there are three eternal persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all equal as they share that one nature. It, it's helpful to think of it like a grammar. We, we may not understand everything, but we can speak rightly about God. Now, when we come to a verse like the one before us, the, the fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ. What do, what do we make of that? In, in the year 451, one early church council at Chalcedon was addressing various heretical views on, on who Jesus is. They put together a definition that acts as a summary of, of what Scripture teaches about Christ and how we should think about him. I'll, I'll read it here as, as it may be helpful. Therefore, following the Holy Fathers... 
we all unite in teaching that we should confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. This same one is perfect in deity, and the same one is perfect in humanity. The same one is true God and true mind, comprising of a rational soul and body. He is of the same essence as the Father according to his deity, and the same one is of the same essence with us according to his humanity, like us in all things except sin. He was begotten before the ages from the Father according to his deity, but in the last days and for us and for our salvation, he, the same one was born of the Virgin Mary, the bearer of God according to his humanity. He is, of, he is one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, and only begotten, who is made known in two natures, uh, united unconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. The division between the natures is not at all destroyed because of the union, but rather the property of each nature is preserved and concurs together in one person and subsistence. He is not separated or divided in two persons, but he is one and the same Son, the only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the way the prophets spoke of him from the beginning, and Jesus Christ himself instructed us, and the counsel of the fathers has handed down to us. So, so that, that's how Chalcedon d- defines Christ. So I'll, I'll briefly break that down a bit. Basically, there, there were five points that were made there. First, Jesus Christ has two natures, God and man, each with a will. Second, both natures are full and complete. So he's not like a demigod. He's truly God and truly man. Third, each nature remains distinct. So he's not a, a blend of God and man. Fourth, Christ is, is only one person. So, so we can't speak of his human nature as being a, a separate person from his divine nature. And, and fifth, there are things that, th- things that are true of one nature and not the other are still true of Christ. So, so, if, his, so if in his human nature he is thirsty, we, we, can, we can speak of Christ as, as being thirsty. Now, now, that's a lot, but it articulates to some degree what it means here in this text for the fullness of God to be in Christ. Now, if you didn't get all that, that that's okay. You can, you can always look up the Chalcedon definition, and, and, what our, and, and our church's What We Teach document is, is also a helpful resource. But we're not saved by doctrinal perfection, right? I, I had a teacher who used to say, um, God can handle your, your heretical prayers, <laughs> But, but it is important that we can, think of God, we can think of Christ rightly, and most importantly, by recognizing that he is both God and man as it's revealed in Scripture. Now, if Christ is truly God, what does that mean for our worldview? It means that he has the right to tell us how to live. It means that if we build our worldview on him, we are doing it under the authority of the sovereign ruler of heaven and earth. The next part of his argument is in verse 10. Paul says, you have been filled by him. Now this is pretty incredible. The fullness of deity dwells in Christ, and Christ fills us. Now notice how the word filled, or or complete, here in verse 10 and, and, and notice the word empty back in verse 8. Earlier we saw that unbiblical worldviews are ultimately an illusion because they can never satisfy the longings that, that they claim to fill. 
the, the wonderful reality of Christianity is that in Christ, we are complete. As Augustine famously put it, you have made us for yourself, God, and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. Every worldview has a position on salvation. How do we get to our hope? Where do we put our hope? The Christian hope is that we find our rest in Christ. Here is the end of all longing and all searching. The emptiness that the world leaves us with is filled in the gospel. As, as Jesus says at the end of Matthew 11, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We are inundated with message on, messages on how we should live and what we need to do to find satisfaction. If we don't look to our Creator, we will continue to wander restless, trying to satisfy, what, with, trying to satisfy ourselves with what God longs to fill. God is so rightly thrilled with His own majesty and His own sufficiency to be your everything that He saw it fit to offer Himself to you. As Paul said in, in, Paul, in Colossians 1, 19-20, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things in heaven or things on earth, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. One thing that those verses point out is that all things are reconciled to Christ. So there's that dividing line here between Christ and and, and everything else. And one thing that makes Christ so much greater than everything else is that all of those things come together in him. So it, it's not that the, the world doesn't matter to those who, who, who are under Christ. Christ is the one who created the world, after all, and he created it for himself. So rather... In, in a Christian worldview, we ought to have a Christ-centered enjoyment of the world, where we live under his authority. When we enjoy the world as the Creator intended, we are not using, as, using it as a means to find our completeness. Rather, we see that we are filled by Christ. If we recognize that Jesus is truly the infinite God, and that everything comes together in him, what more could we want? At that point, Having Jesus plus anything else doesn't make any sense. When, when we get Christ, in a sense, we get everything else with him. But when we sinfully chase after um, anything else, we are not honoring Christ, nor are we enjoying those things that we're chasing after as we should in their proper place. To see the world in its proper place requires submission to Christ as our head, as our Lord. The, the end of today's passage tells us that Christ is the head over every ruler and authority. So even those things come together in Christ. We saw earlier um, the, the, of the elements that some would point to and say, you know, you should build your life around this because this is how the world works. What, what Paul is saying here is that all of the structures that appear to govern the world are all under the reign of Christ. Paul is very clear about this. 
Colossians 2.15 says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in Him. And Colossians 1.16-17 says, For everything was created by Him, in heaven and on earth, the visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and by Him all things hold together. That's why it's important to let Christ dictate our philosophy. He is Lord over all. What this passage has shown us is, is the clear opposition between a Christ-centered worldview and every other philosophy. It's a matter of whether you put your trust in your own senses and judgment, or if you let Christ be the Lord of your life. To live autonomously can only get us so far. We are creatures who, who live in God's world, and so our idea of how to live needs to be shaped by God, because that's where true wisdom is found. Colossians 2-3 to says this, I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love so that they may have all the riches of complete understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Let's pray. Father, I, I pray that we would not forget Christ and that we would place him as our center and, and ground all of our wisdom and our knowledge in him because that's where it's all found. Father, we pray, as, as Paul says in Colossians 1, that, that we may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding so that, we may be, so that we may walk worthy of you, fully pleasing to you, God. And, and I, I pray that your word would, would set deeply in our hearts so that we might see you as we ought and know you as we ought. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.